We're in journey through Genesis. Listen, we're in part 33, which is Genesis 49. We introed it last week. We're going to finish it this week. And we only have one more chapter in Genesis. Is that wild? And then we're going to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. The Alpha and the Omega. And that's going to be a great, great study. I'm very excited about that. All right. So let me say a word of prayer and then we'll jump right into it. Father, thank you for your faithfulness, for your word. I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts tonight. Challenge us in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. All right. Here we go. Now, we looked last time at how there are 13 tribes, 14 if you count Joseph, but it's the two half tribes that so you got 12 kids you got the the two sons of Joseph who are adopted by Jacob and those 12 tribes uh, are comprised of these 13 names 14 if you count Joseph they're mentioned 20 times in scripture grouped together and at times they're they're, they're, they're grouped different ways. Sometimes they're grouped according to the mothers, sometimes according to the birth order, sometimes just by who is marching in this particular battle or situation. And so it's interesting. We looked at that last time. And now we're going to look at chapter 49 at the kind of the breakdown of the blessing or the prophesying that Jacob does over these boys. Now, an interesting thing you can do on your own is is read Genesis 49 alongside of Deuteronomy 33. They're parallel because in Genesis 49, Jacob is speaking of the 12 tribes prophetically. And in Deuteronomy 33, Moses is speaking of the 12 tribes prophetically. So it's interesting to couple those together and look at some details that are left out of one, included in another, and just kind of put it all together. But we're going to stay in Genesis 49. <coughs> look with me to verse verses 1 and 2. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. So he's knowingly about to prophesy. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Now, this is fascinating to me. He's about to prophesy. One writer points out this is the first conscious prophecy spoken by man in the Bible. There were already many prophecies announced by God, such as the promise of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. There were other veiled prophecies, but this is the first that we have where a man says, I am about to prophesy, thus says the Lord. It's interesting to note that Jacob refers to himself as both Jacob and Israel. Notice that. Gather together and hear you sons of Jacob and listen to Israel your father, he's reached this place of self-awareness. He knows himself. It's like Maslow's self-actualization. Shakespeare said, to thine own self be true. 
Jacob knew who he was. He was Israel, but he still struggled with that old nature, with that old man, Jacob. And here Jacob prophesies according to their birth order from eldest to youngest. Look at verses 3 and 4. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Now notice this, excellency of dignity, excellency of power, beginning of my strength, my might, my firstborn, but you will not excel. Reuben was supposed to be the leader of the family. He was the heir apparent. He was supposed to be strong, the, the, the pinnacle of dignity and power, excellent in every way. He should have been referred to as your excellency. But Jacob says you are an unstable. You are as unstable as water. The word unstable here is from a Hebrew word that means unrestrained, unbridled, reckless. Water follows the path of least resistance, right? Just kind of goes wherever and and it can't help itself when there's no boundary holding it, restraining it, it goes where it wants. That's the idea. Reuben had no boundaries. Reuben had no standards. Reuben had no restraints. Way back in Genesis 35, this is referred to here, Reuben slept with his dad's concubine, Bilhah, the mother of his brothers, Dan and Naphtali. Now, this was not just a, a, a sexual sin. This was really an attack on the authority and the leadership of Jacob. This was a play for control. Reuben was ambitious, and he would do whatever it took to be the man. There's no character, no ethics. And back in Genesis 35, Jacob didn't say much about it. He was very strangely mute when it came to this situation. But he never forgot, and here it is some 50 years later, and he's on his deathbed, and he recalls the situation and says, Reuben, you will never live up to your potential. You will never excel. You will never never live a life of excellence. And the reason why was because the boy had no restraint. The man had no restraint, no boundaries no standards. He was driven by blind ambition, a lust for power and prestige. Let me just say this. If you're going to live up to your potential, if I'm going to live up to my potential, we're going to have to do so in the constraints of boundaries and standards and morals. We can't live reckless lives rebellious lives, and those lives be excellent at the same time. Here's the deal. 
you may violate God's standards, uh, you know, occasionally, like a river overruns its banks, kind of floods at times, but then you quickly return within those boundaries and, and live your life governed by those boundaries. Those boundaries are what makes the river deep and powerful. A powerful life is a narrow life, lived within a narrow scope, lived within boundaries. Are you with me? Does that make sense? And, and as the firstborn, Reuben was supposed to get a double portion, but he lost that to Joseph. He was supposed to be the priest of the home, the priest of the family, but he lost that to Levi. As the firstborn, he was supposed to get the kingship, the authority, but he lost that to Judah. He lost everything. Now, really, all of this responsibility as far as the double portion, the priesthood, the kingship, all of that being decentralized and spread throughout the rest of the tribes was to the genius of God. It was something God foresaw in His sovereignty. But it all happened because of the instability of Reuben. Reuben, unstable as water. I'm going to do whatever I feel like doing. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get to where I think I need to be. No restraints, no morals, no standards holding him back, restraining him. I'm just telling you guys, listen, as men, we need some restraints in our lives, right? Women, you do too, but I can't speak on your behalf. But I know we need some accountability. We need some boundaries. We need some standards. We need some things to hold us in place. Why, wow, it's awful quiet in here on this Wednesday night. I'm going to have to get louder and louder and louder, you know. You get quieter and quieter and quieter. Now, here's an interesting point. Reuben was merciful towards Joseph. Way back when Joseph was put in the pit, it was his idea. Let's put him in the pit instead of kill him. And it says his idea was, I'm going to go back and rescue Joseph and pull him out of the pit. But the fact that Reuben was merciful towards Joseph was not enough to overcome his reckless lifestyle. Now, Joseph was a type of Christ, as we've seen. But just because Reuben was respectful towards Joseph did not mean he would not harvest a crop from his disobedience and disrespect. And in the same way, we can respect Jesus, the things of God, church, whatever, but that's not going to trump our disobedience. If we get outside the, the rules, then we're going to suffer the consequences. Reuben was that guy. He'd give you the shirt off his back, but he lived like the devil in the meantime. You ever known somebody like that? He'd give you the shirt off his back, but he lived like the devil and it actually cost him everything that was supposed to be coming to him that was good. Even though he was merciful, he lost so much because he was reckless. I don't want to be that guy, amen? It's interesting to note that Reuben also put down roots just outside the promised land. He never entered in. He stopped on the east side of the Jordan. He stopped short 
He was supposed to lead the way, but he never even crossed over. And a lack of restraint will keep you out of God's promises. And he was also the first one that would be attacked when the enemy came against Israel. Those on the east side always got hit first. Reuben was supposed to be the first in every way, but he finished last. He is an example of how the first can be last. Jesus said that in Matthew 19.30. And we see where no prophet, no judge, no king ever came from the tribe of Reuben. Interesting. Jacob prophesies this. Look at verses 5 through 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their counsel. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Simeon and Levi were a team. They were the next sons of Leah. They were closer to each other than to their other brothers. They were both hot-headed, quick to fly off the handle. They had bad tempers. They were instruments of cruelty. They were brutal. They ramrodded the slaughter at Shechem. We looked at this back in Genesis 34. Again, Jacob didn't say much when Simeon and Levi slaughtered those men at Shechem. He, he made a self-serving remark. He said in Genesis 34, 30, you've made me look obnoxious to the inhabitants of the land. But 50 years later or so, on his deathbed, he dials up this event and he calls him into account. Israel says, his honor should not be united to them. In other words, you're not going to put my name on your behaviors. Don't damage my brand by your behaviors. My name, by associating me with your cruelty and bad temper, it's not going to happen. Now, Simeon and Levi were very unmerciful men. They were demanding men. We saw that with Shechem. But Jacob then makes this statement. He said they were self-willed, and he said it was they're being self-willed that in being self-willed, they hamstrung an ox. They hamstrung an ox. Strange terminology. But it has to do with the hamstring. You ever been that guy playing football and you're like running, 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 and then you pull a hamstring? Or you ever seen that guy? He's on the field like he's giving it everything he's got, Ben, like he's, he's going to town. And then you see him, it's like, oh, and he falls down, and everybody's like, oh, man, what happened? And, but if you know a hamstring injury, you're you like, he pulled his hamstring right. That's exactly what happened. It disabled him. He, he could be the fastest guy in the NFL. He can be, be the fastest guy at LSU. But if he pulls a hamstring, he's going down. And you can have a thoroughbred. But you know what? If, if you cut his tendon in his leg, he ain't running nowhere. And that's what what the the analogy is here. It's the idea of disabling an animal that has so much potential that can get things done. In other words, it now cannot do what it was designed to do. Simeon and Levi were powerful and they had the ability to accomplish great things, 
but he said their self-will was disabling them from accomplishing what God had called them to do. When it says in verse 6 that in their anger they slew a man, we know the story, but that reminds me of Lamech back in Genesis 4. We talked about him weeks ago, the first polygamist who killed a man for hurting his feelings. The way it's worded is just bizarre to me. He comes home to his pair of wives. He's like, hey, girls, guess what I did today? And I'm sure like in unison, they're like, what'd you do, handsome? You know, and he said, I killed a man today because he hurt my feelings. And they they said, ooh, wow, God's going to get you. And if you'll remember, Lamech said, no, he's not going to get me. You see, he pardoned Cain. That's what Lamech said. When, when Cain killed Abel, the Lord didn't kill Cain. The Lord came to him and showed him mercy. He put a mark on him because Cain said, he, he banished him, but Cain said, if my brothers find me, if anybody finds me, they'll kill me for what I did to Abel. And the Lord said, no, I'm going to put a mark on you, and if anybody kills you, I'll avenge you seven times. Well, Emek misunderstood that mercy of God and saw it as a license for him to do the same thing, go out and commit sin. And so Lamech said, if he'll avenge Cain seven times, he'll avenge me 70 times seven. What was that? It was self-will. He was blinded by self. He was blinded by, you know, seeing things his own way. And, and that's, that's the way it was working with Simeon and Levi. They were hamstrung. They were disabled from doing what God had called them to do. They, they were led by their feelings, hot-headed, short-fused, short-tempered. Moses was a Levite. Remember when he came down from the mountain holding the Ten Commandments and he saw the golden calf, heard all that racket? What did he do? He threw him down. He's a Levite. He's like, I, I, this probably in Hebrew, he says something like this, dead, gum it, bam, threw him down, you know. I don't know if you can say that or not. I grew up saying that. He threw him down. Ugh, I can't believe this. Now, he was a Levite. He was hot-headed. Man, it made him mad. But now he changed. That's something that's interesting in the Old Testament. He changed. He was the meekest man, the Bible says, on the earth. Now, at the same time, Moses did write that. Under the inspiration of the Spirit. But Moses, you know, he probably checked it with God. Are you sure you want me to write that down? Oh, shucks, Lord. Okay. Moses was the meekest man. Thank you, Lord. Now, <clears throat> this is interesting. Guzik points out this prophecy of dividing and scattering. He said, "He said you're you're going to be scattered, you're going to be divided amongst your brethren. The scattering and dividing for Simeon was a curse. The tribe of Simeon was the weakest." numerically of the 12, 
because we have censuses in the book of Numbers. Simeon was the weakest numerically of the twelve and shared an allotment of land with Judah. The tribe of Simeon became small during the wilderness wanderings. They started out from Egypt being the third largest tribe, Numbers 123, but 35 years later at the second wilderness census of Israel, 63% of the tribe had perished and they became the smallest. When, you know, you're unrestrained like Reuben, self-willed, out of control, led by your feelings, Satan takes advantage of that and reduces you. Remember when Jesus looked at Peter and he says, I prayed for you that your faith would not feel, uh, fail because Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. That means to reduce you. He has seduced you to reduce you. And he said, I prayed for you that your, that, uh, your faith would not fail. The idea is the same here. Simeon was reduced because of self-will, being led by his feelings, kind of like Peter was right there around the crucifixion. And then the prophecy of dividing and scattering really became a blessing to Levi because of the faithfulness of this tribe during the rebellion. Remember when Moses broke those Ten Commandments. He's a Levite. He's a hothead. Check this out. And he said, who's on the Lord's side? And his brothers from the tribe of Levi said, we're on the Lord's side. He said, then take your swords and go kill your brothers that are dancing around that gold calf. Now, this is talking about, this is vicious right here. And they take the sword and they go killing fellow children of Israel dancing around that calf until the Lord tells Moses to tell them to stop, and they stop. And because of that, they were honored to become the priests in the 12 tribes. They became priests. They were, they were exempted from serving in the military, and they became priests, and they were scattered throughout the whole nation of Israel. They were not given a portion of land per se, but 48 cities throughout the promised land. This became a blessing to them, but it was because of their behavior there at the golden calf. Now, there's more about this next son than any of the others. His name is Judah. Now, let me say this. There's a goofy teaching about the lost ten tribes of Israel. Uh, Like, you know, the kingdom was divided later, and, and the the northern tribes would be the ten tribes, and the two tribes, Judah, Benjamin, were in the south. And, you know, eventually uh, they were both the northern and the southern kingdom were taken into captivity, and the southern kingdom was restored. The northern kingdom you don't hear much about. And so there's all kind of myths and legend about whatever happened to the ten tribes. 
uh, the lost tribes. And, you know, Prince Charles is, uh, you know, part of the ten lost tribes of Israel and the Brits. and all, There's all kind of stuff about that. But, but so much of that is just foolishness and amusing uh, because the tribes are represented even during after the captivity. You have, you have the, the family names remaining, staying in, in the time of Hezekiah. You've got Simeon, who's the smallest tribe, who's pretty much obliterated, doesn't have his own tract of land. He shares some land with Judah, okay, which is in the southern kingdom. You still have him in the time of Hezekiah. There's 13 princes mentioned in First Chronicles 4.43. So there's so much uh, in the Bible that's, uh, you know, alluded to. And if you dig around, you can get beyond just that surface stuff that ends up on your Google search. Now, there's more about Judah than these others. Look at verses 8 through 12. Are you with me on this Wednesday night? Isn't this just awesome? Isn't it exciting even? I'm beside myself right now. Verses 8 through 12. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. His name means praise. It's kind of a play on words. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion... Who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Judah is destined to reign. This is the kingly tribe. Reuben lost this. Judah gets this. He's destined to rule. Eventually, the king of Israel, when they get a king, that eventually that king, not the first one, but eventually that king is going to come from Judah, as would Messiah, the King of Kings. Revelation 5.5 5 says Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of who? Of Judah. Now, notice it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh. Everybody say Shiloh. Shiloh means he to whom it belongs, or he whose right it is. The ancient rabbi saw this as nothing else other than, nothing other than a reference to Messiah. One writer points out this prophecy took some 640 years to fulfill in part with the reign of David. David was the second king. First of uh, first. He was the first of Judah's dynasty of kings. And the prophecy took some 1,600 years to completely be fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus being the Shiloh, the one to whom the scepter, the authority belonged. 
Here's an interesting thought. From, from David until the Herods, a prince of Judah was always the king or the head of Israel. Even in Babylonian captivity, Daniel was leading. And in Daniel 1.6, Daniel, we see, was from the tribe of Judah. So you have Judah's line reigning. The promise was that Israel would keep this scepter until Shiloh comes. Judah would keep this scepter until Shiloh comes. So even under their foreign rule during those periods, Israel had at least some kind of limited right to self-rule. It could be argued that it, that was the case until A.D. 7. Listen to this. At that time, under Herod and the Romans, Israel lost its right to capital punishment. Now, that was a small bit of what was left of their ability to govern themselves, but it was taken away. If you'll remember, when the woman was caught in the act of adultery, John chapter 8, Jesus was teaching in the temple, and the Bible says he was seated, and he was teaching. So he's sitting down, he's teaching. And a woman was caught in the act of of adultery, and she was brought before Jesus. Now, that was religious people that brought her before Jesus. They didn't care about that woman. They didn't care that she was caught in the act of adultery. It says... They had stones in their hands, and they came to Jesus, and they said, the Torah, the Scripture says she should be stoned to death, capital punishment. What do you say about it? And it says they did this to tempt Jesus. They did this to catch him in a trap. What was the trap? If Jesus were to say, I believe what the Bible says, She should be killed. Let's kill her now. Then they could go to the Romans and say he is trying to incite an insurrection against Rome, trying to lead a rebellion to overthrow Rome because the Jews didn't have the right to carry out capital punishment. They were not reigning like Judah was promised to reign. They didn't have the right to capital punishment. Only the Romans did. That's why the Jews couldn't kill Jesus. They had to get Pilate to sign off on it on the Roman cross, on the crucifixion. They were not allowed to carry out capital punishment. And so this idea that the scepter would stay with Judah until Shiloh came, when they lost the right to carry out capital punishment, are you with me? When they lost the right to carry out capital punishment, then there are historians that talk about rabbis walking through the streets. They love to say, oy vey, woe is me. They love those woes, those rabbis. They were saying, woe to us because the scepter has departed and Shiloh has not come. The Messiah has not come. And we don't even have the... The right to self-govern. 
The scepter's departed. There's no Shiloh. What they didn't know, though, was prior to them losing that right around 7 A.D. In Bethlehem, there was a baby that was born who was the king of kings and the lord of lords who was their Shiloh. And so when they were walking through the streets saying, there is no scepter anymore and Shiloh has not come, very likely they were passing up a little boy, a little baby, a a young man who was the very Shiloh that they didn't recognize. He came unto his own and his own received him not. They did not know it was him. Maybe at 12 years old, this was part of the dilemma that they were dealing with in the temple. We don't understand. The scepter's departed. Shiloh's not come. And he was trying to explain to them, you don't understand. He is already here. It wasn't time to reveal it. But eventually, he would say, I am he. I am the one. Before Abraham was, I am. Shiloh had come for certain, but they didn't understand that. Jesus was alive and well. The blessing in Judas, this prophecy here, it contained material abundance as well, the the vine, the choice vine. Judah's land was great. It was fertile. Let's look at verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Zebulun would become a seafaring people. Between the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee, it literally means they faced the sea. They did this both ways there. Verses 14 through 15, Issachar is a strong donkey. How would you like that, right? Wouldn't you like that over you? Prophecy over you. He's, he's a strong donkey. Lying down between two burdens, he saw that rest was good and the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Issachar was strong. He was strong, but he was lazy. He was strong, but he wouldn't strive for the land, so he just he didn't possess it like he should have. The light went out. It's weird. Verses 16 and 17. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan means judge. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backwards. Dan would strike Israel with idolatry. With the worship of the golden calf, the bull cults would come into vogue in Dan. This was a poison to the children of Israel. Again, prophetic. Verse 18, listen to this. Jacob says this. In in the middle of these prophecies, he says, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Literally in the Hebrew, it says it in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew Bible. It's Jacob saying, I have waited on Yahweh, Yeshua. I have waited on Jesus, God, Almighty God. That tetragrammaton in the Hebrew, that covenant name, that Yahweh, and then it's, it's literally Yeshua, my salvation. Jehovah has become my salvation. I have waited on Yahweh, Yeshua. That's profound. It's right there in, in your Bible, in my Bible. Then verse 19, Gad, a troop, shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. 
Gad provided many troops for King David, but Gad was also overcome many times, especially because they were with Reuben on the east side of the Jordan River. Uh, and, and when the demoniac of Gadara, which I mentioned last time, when the demoniac of Gadara was overcome by legion, a troop, the lion of the tribe of Judah, told his disciples, I've got to go to the other side and I have to rescue this Gadarene, this, this man from Gadara, and he delivered him. He came to his rescue. Jesus knew this story, no doubt, this prophecy, and as I've preached about many times, he was following a script. Jesus was. You know, just like Israel went into Egypt, and Moses said to Pharaoh, let Israel, my firstborn, go. Jesus went into Egypt. Remember when he was a young man, when he was a baby. Joseph had a dream. Herod's after the boy. They went into Egypt. They came back. They lived on the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They came back out of Egypt. I have called my son was prophetic. Jesus knew these things. He was following the script. As the children of Israel went into the wilderness where they were tempted, Jesus, it says, was driven into the wilderness where he was tempted of the devil, and he overcame by the word. So he's following this script. I think that's one of the reasons he went to Gad to deliver that gathering. Verse 20, bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Asher's land was not only enough for his necessities, but for luxuries as well, these royal dainties. I heard one writer say, I read one writer, he said that this was a reference to pastries. He was, this was the baking tribe. I have no idea. Bread from Asher, though, it does say that. Verse 21, Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. And this is in reference to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Look at Matthew 4. We'll close with this. Matthew 4, 12 through 16. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. It's this idea of the ministry of Jesus, so much of it taking place in this region. Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Jesus speaking those words of life. Look at John 7. Verse 40, because this deals with this also. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? 
The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. So these officers were sent on assignment to capture Jesus, but they didn't do it because they said, we've never heard anybody talk like this guy. Then the Pharisees answered and said, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is a curse. Nicodemus, remember he's the guy that came to Jesus at night. Being one of them said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, to Nicodemus, are you from Galilee? Search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Now here's the deal. We just read where the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. And then here they say, there's no prophet that's ever come out of Galilee. Let me read what N.T. Wright says. The Pharisees further show their ignorance of Scripture and that both the prophets Jonah, everybody say Jonah, and Hosea, say Hosea, came from Galilee. And when John has them say that no prophet rises up or arises from Galilee, the word he uses is almost always used elsewhere in the book to refer to the resurrection. Jonah was proverbial for coming, so it seemed, back from the dead after three days in the belly of the fish. And Hosea contains the prophecy that God will raise up on the third day, Hosea 6.2. So you have this idea of the Pharisees, we think of them as Bible experts, but they didn't even recognize that Jonah and Hosea and Jesus, I don't have time to get into it, said, listen, there's a, they said, we want a sign. He said, there's no sign given an evil and adulterous generation looks for a sign. The only sign you're getting is Jonah the prophet. He was in the belly of the well for three days. So it's interesting to me that this land of Naphtali is where Jesus' ministry was and so much of it took place. And the Pharisees were totally blind to the very things that I'm sharing with you tonight. Why don't you stand with me right now and encourage me to finish this up. Verses 22 through 26. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, hated him. But his bow remained remained in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your Father who will help you and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your Father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who has, who was separate from his brothers. Joseph was so blessed, a fruitful bough, and became a blessing to others, saved his family. His fruitful bough, the branches ran over the wall. He was a survivor, archers, bitterness, hatred, betrayal by his brothers. Joseph was a survivor. And it's so beautiful the way it says it. 
and the arms of his hands were made strong by the mighty God, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, and by the Almighty who will help him. Blessings, blessings. It says that he, his hand was in the hand of Almighty God, the shepherd, the stone. He was blessed, separate, and above his brothers. We've seen the story of Joseph. It's so well portrayed here. He said, Benjamin was a ravenous wolf. He'll devour the prey at night, divide the spoil. This is speaking of the viciousness of this youngest tribe, Benjamin. Let me tell you some guys that were from this tribe. Saul, the first king of Israel. Saul of Tarsus. Persecutor of the church. Had issues, but prophetic. This is prophetic. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them. And he blessed each one according to his own blessing. And then verses 29 through 23. I am to be gathered to my people. And then he begins to talk about where he wants to be buried. I want to be buried there with Leah. It's the ending of a magnificent life. The life of Jacob. He kept his faith. And at the end, he saw into the future. He saw where God was going, what God was doing. He saw where his family was headed. When he breathed his last, he's gathered up to his people. And we'll finish up Genesis 50 next time, which will be our last one. And then we'll start in the book of Revelation. The Bible, man, it is such a powerful book. If you just dive in, you dig in, pieces come together. The truth is so powerful and poignant. Faith comes. The devil's a liar. The word of God is true. We've seen this in these stories. They just come to pass, come to pass, come to pass. Shiloh came. Shiloh had to come before at least the Herods. But it's beyond that. At 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed. Israel was not a nation again until 70 years ago, 1948. Think about it. It was this window. Messiah had to come before probably 7 A.D., but for sure before 70 A.D. That's a small little space, 63 years. He had to come before that little period of time. Here we are 2,000 years later. He didn't wait, you know, a day late. He came just on time. Amen? And I guess my encouragement for you tonight is if he was on time with that, he'll be on time in your life. He'll be on time in your situation. He's not forgotten where you are. He's not forgotten what you're going through. He knows exactly where you are. He is in this house tonight. He's moving behind the scenes. He'll take the evil that was meant for your destruction, and he'll flip it around because he's a genius like that and a amazing, and he'll turn it for your good and bring blessing out of it. And what was supposed to crush you and destroy you, Ben, he'll lift it up. He'll put you on top. You'll be above only and not beneath. And it's just like, I'm going to walk in this path. I'm going to yield myself. I'm going to submit myself. I'm not going to be self-willed, God. I'm just, going to, I'm just going to yield myself. Let me be who you want me to be. Amen. God knows right where you are. Can you lift your hands to him right now? Father, we give you praise. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for your faithfulness, God. 
You never turn your back on us. You never leave us. You never forsake us. You know right where we are. Just like you knew where Jacob was and all those boys. You knew how to get Shiloh in the right place at the right time. You knew how to get a Mary on the scene, Lord, from the tribe of Judah. And a Joseph on the scene at the right time. You knew how to orchestrate all of that. You knew how to get your son out of Israel and into Egypt. And then back out of Egypt and back into Israel. You knew how to get him to that old rugged cross, Lord. And out of that empty grave, out of that tomb, Lord, alive forevermore. And you know right where we are here tonight in Prairieville, Louisiana. Hallelujah.